Okay, welcome everybody to the Academy of Management Review Origin Series. We're back with episode 39. And in episode 39, we're going to be talking about a paper entitled Theoretical Light in Empirical Darkness, Illuminating Strategic Concealment of Corporate Political Activity. And um, uh, this paper was written by Nanja, Stanislav Marcus, and Timothy Werner. Werner and I'm going to ask them uh, to, uh, uh, I'm going to, we're joined by Nan and Tim, and I'm going to ask them briefly just to introduce themselves as we kick this off. So Nan, can you start off by just giving us a little bit about who you are, um, where you're located, what kind of research you're interested in, and then we'll move into, move to Tim and then move into the nuances of the paper. Sure. Um, thanks, Greg. Uh, my name is Nanjia. I'm associate professor at the Marshall School of Business at University of Southern California. Um, I'm in the management organization department. Uh, so my research consists of uh, uh, two streams. The first one is business government relationships, hence this paper is very much related to, to what I do. Um, and the other one is uh, emerging technologies being used in, in organizations, which is relatively new. Cool. Tim? Uh, I'm Tim Warner. I'm an associate professor of business, government, and society at the Macomb School of Business at the University of Texas. Um, I'm by training actually a political scientist, but I sit in a business school, and my research is primarily on uh, corporate political activity, but I also e examine its intersections with other ESG and CSR related issues, as well as with corporate governance. So corporate political activity, central theme to what's going on in this paper. But it's not necessarily the corporate political activity, but it's the concealment of the corporate political activity, which I thought was a really interesting sort of notion embedded within the paper. Now, I'm probably overstepping my mark here. So before we go uh, too much into talking about how do you theorize about what's not been shown or not there, let's get a high level sense of just what the paper's about. So. Can, can can either of you just start off by giving me sort of a relatively short elevator pitch about what this paper is about and what are you trying to do here? Dan, do you want to go first or shall I? Yeah, okay, okay. So I was waiting for a record call, code caller. Uh, so, so very briefly, uh, we are trying to indeed, Greg, is, uh, we are not only just trying to understand corporate political activities, but we're trying to understand the hidden ones, the concealed ones. And I have a story there. I think we can chat a little bit about it. And uh, so to understand that, uh, because it's actually a blank page, as you, if you will, um, not a lot of studies been done about it, um, even though people working in this field as team will, uh, will, will uh, will tell you, Tim, here's your assignment, is <laughs> actually uh, people know it's prevalent and it's important. And it is probably the unobserved political activities are the ones that actually matters more <laughs> than the ones that we can observe. Um, so we have to take one political, like theoretical angle at the to making the first step at it. And here uh, we'll have a second story for you later on. <laughs> so let's start with the first story then, because you, you, you can't you can't use the word story and not follow that up with a story. So we'll go with the story and then we'll get Tim's sort of take on this paper and why it's interesting to him. But let's start with you, Nan. So the first story will very naturally call on Tim in about five <laughs> seconds, maybe 10 seconds. Um, <laughs> So to me, uh, uh, concealed or uh, uh, these kind of concealed political or quite covert political political activities are pretty novel for me at that moment. But for Tin, he almost made his career by looking at the dark side of political activities. Um, mm. So it was pretty, so if, if I was actually introduced into this notion by interacting with Tim and looking at his paper, thinking about, wow, okay, that's pretty cool. And there are something we need to do about it. Um, and that's, and, and Tim and Stan, they were discussing about, you know, we, we probably need to write something about these, these uh, concealed political activities. And I was really happy to join, to, to join them. Um, they initiated this idea, um, mainly because I think it's, it's novel and it's important and, and by, by construction is poorly understood. Um, so now I will let Tim explain why he likes to focus on dark side of things. <laughs> 
So Tim, what's your background with number one, corporate political activity, but then more with the nuance of sort of trying to understand what's being concealed with this activity? Sure. So uh, actually, I'm kind of one of the, I guess, rare academics who has done what he studies. Um, so in between my undergraduate and graduate degree, I worked for a corporation doing um, government affairs work. Um, so I had a pretty good sense of, you know, where they were investing their money and whatnot. And, you know, once I became an academic, I could see a mismatch between what we were studying and what was actually being practiced. Um, and, you know, that motivated me to some degree, but then actually within a year of me graduating from my PhD, and I should say my work kind of in terms of a geographic context largely focuses on the US, um, the Supreme Court announced its decision in Citizens United. And that case enabled a lot of covert or concealed political activity. So as Nan was jokingly referring to, um, this is a decision that perhaps I may not have normatively agreed with, but has done a lot for my career <laughs> in terms of uh, giving me opportunities to study things. And in particular, in the wake of that decision, you know, there have been kind of various leakages of this sort of uh, activity, of political activities that are in, intended to be concealed. Um, and I started doing kind of piecemeal empirical work in this space because I thought what little I could do was in some ways more valuable than the marginal contributions that are continuing to be made in the CPA kind of more mature space of observable stuff, right? Um, but then I quickly hit a limit, right? There's only so many times a company messes up or a trade association messes up and discloses things accidentally or a whistleblower, uh, you know, comes out and says stuff. So I thought, well, here's an opportunity to turn from empirics to theory and really try and model uh, how, when, and why companies or, you know, industries are turning to these sorts of activities. So you land up as with the decision to say, well, if we tackle um, understanding how, when, and why companies might conceal their political activities, um, we can um, at least gain theoretically a better understanding of, of, of when this might happen. How do you come together as a team and decide to do this? And who's sort of bringing what to this team? I guess, Tim, you're bringing the, 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 the impetus in terms of ha having worked in this space, having done work in this space. Um, but, but talk to us a little bit about coming together as a team and what, what was the sort of impetus behind that and, and, then, and, and, and how you, what, what everyone brought to the table. Um, sure, so I think the actual origin of this was um, our third co-author, Stan, approached me when I was hosting an extension of the Strategic Management Society's annual meeting uh, here in Austin on non-market strategy, right? So that encompasses both corporate political activity and kind of CSR ESG. And he, uh, like me, is by training a political scientist, although he does kind of comparative work. Um, and, you know, we started brainstorming about this topic and we both quickly realized that a theoretical paper would be the way to go, but we had no ability to write that sort of paper for AMR. <laughs> and I was very familiar with Nan's work and we had been friends for a couple of years. And in particular, she had put out uh, an AMR paper on the choice between making or buying when it comes to lobbying by firms. So I approached her about joining our team. And she was gracious enough to say yes, I should say, <laughs> when we came with very little beyond a broad idea. <laughs> I was tremendously interested. And here comes my second second story. Um, <laughs> so uh, what initially were, were, if you look at the very first draft, it looks very different from the last one. Uh, so indeed is, is um, initially, you know, for all, of, all three of us, we found the ideas super appealing, is uh, something that we resonate with us, but there exists zero theoretical framework. We're very limited uh, uh, in, pri in prior work. By the way, all the prior work we identified is mostly come from the three, of, the three authors. That's not a good thing. <laughs> um, and so, so obviously the question is where where get it start where we, do we get start so be, between um when we first decided to do this and the first initial draft 
I want to describe it as a team. I don't know if you, you agree. It's like three kids were just running on beaches, finding all sorts of uh, treasures. Like, wow, look at this, or that. But you, when you put them together, it's like you cannot put them together. <laughs> they are fragmented. They are like uh, they are beautiful in different ways. Um, so, and and it's I think it's a, both both a blessing and the curse that the topic is not being studied. So there's no nothing we can anchor on. So our very first draft um, essentially looked like. We did our we did our best to tie it together, but it looked like a laundry list of these beautiful things that we each find our interest in. And obviously, Greg, as you know, the editors will say, "No way, <laughs> too fragmented." Give, no. give us a, a theoretical framework, so which means we have to throw away a bunch of uh, uh, other things while picking one political political uh, one, a theoretical perspective. Um, and there. Uh, I don't know if you remember, Tim mentioned his training in, uh, in actually uh, as a political scientist. And not only that, he was a professor of American politics for, for a long while, not long while, a few years, Tim. Right? And so that actually experience gave us the, the idea and, and ended up the decision to, uh, to pursue, to look at concealed political, um, political activities in the framework of, of positive political theory. That's very established, modeling is there. Um, and very old, not making much progress at this moment, if I, it's fair to say. Um, and we thought, you know, we need anchoring point. That seems to be a great anchoring point. It's, gonna, it's not gonna allow us to look at every single beautiful shell in our initial uh, laundry list, but it it's, can tie together in a very systematic way, uh, much of the insights. Um, so that's where after the, the, the starting from the, the, the Point where we received RNR until the end, that's where the paper was going. Yeah, so I think the so one thing, oh, can I just add one thing, just like from the author's perspective that could help people writing for AMR is even to get to our first draft was probably 18 months of work. And then the RNR basically told us start over. Yeah. <laughs> you have a great idea, but you don't yeah. have a clear theoretical framework. So at what stage in that process? were did you have to sort of say okay this is the anchor this is the theory around that we're going to anchor on and around which we're going to build um was that after having submitted it and gotten the reviews or was there a process leading up to that that you were sort of that you as a team came to the self-realization that there's just too much going on here and we almost need to hone in and focus down um, was it before or after you got, got a set of reviews? So it was say... after, it was, I think it was after in part, and one piece of context that's kind of missing here is, um, we actually submitted to a special issue call about theory oh, yeah. and the importance of theory. And the editors were very quick to tell us <laughs> we kind of missed the boat when it was <laughs> with our submission but they were interested in it and we got positive enough reviews that they were gonna grant us an R&R, &R, but they were punting us out of the special issue into the normal process. And Nan, correct me if I'm wrong, but it took us a long while. And, and granted the other contextual thing here is we got the R&R &R and then the pandemic happened or started. <laughs> um, so between our first R&R &R and when we resubmitted was a long time. I wanna say it was almost the full year uh, in between. Um, and we went through various frameworks. I think we tried yeah. transaction cost economics at one point um, before finally landing on kind of actually positive political theory is actually the really the right way for us to go here. But I, yeah. I want to say it took us like six months of even working on the R and R to get there. Yeah. So I want to add uh, that uh, initially. So so Greg's question is: Did did we realize that framework was too fragmented and needs to be tightened up? We realized to some extent before our initial submission, and we did try to tie it together with some ad, ad hoc framework. Um, and I think it's the the push from the editorial team many made us realize like, guys, this is you have to make the decision. You have to. To, to so because to, to adopt a, a theoretical perspective is we're bound to lose something and i guess before that it's always like reluctant to this is important so it's that thing right and then but then but looking back we, we should have made that decision even sooner <laughs> not and, risking of a rejection altogether and as you look back on that initial set of reviews you in some sense you got um, you were fortunate that there was enough 
within the original submission that the editor and the reviewers were willing to say, well, there's something here. It's a little bit, you know, fragmented or there's too much going on, or you've tried to pack too much into too small a space, but, but we'll give you a, a chance to have a review and to, to hone in on something. Do you get a sense of, as you look back on that initial set of reviews, what was it that they that sort of gave you that chance? What hooked them in? What was the appeal that they said, we're willing to go forward with this, but you're going to have to make some changes. But the reason we're willing to go forward with this is because of what? Did you, did, could you get a sense of that? I, um, if, go, uh, ahead. go ahead, man. No, please. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, we're, we're both guessing, right? Because we're trying to you get into are, it. You, you're obviously guessing. <laughs> <laughs> if I had to guess, it is that the concept of concealment is an understudied one in the social sciences for obvious reasons, right? When your subjects are trying to hide what they're doing, it makes it very difficult for you to, to investigate. Um, so I think there was an allure there, right? And we offer up in the front end of the paper, and this is something that did carry over across drafts, is this, I think, clever conceptualization of the different ways in which you can conceal, right? And I think some of that spills over outside of the realm of CPA into other areas that firms would be interested in, right? Like protecting your intellectual property and how far you could push the boundaries of what a trade secret really is, right? So I think that's part of it. The other part of it is I just think that um, it's viewed as a normatively important uh, area for, um, you know, for any democratic and even non-democratic context, right, uh, to understand how uh, decision makers, public policy makers, that is, are influenced by private interests. Yeah, I also wanted to add that um, I think it also, we are also fortunate to be helped by uh, the edit editorial team's expertise in knowing po corporate political strategy. So they know the empirical stuff, they know the anecdotes, they understand the importance of, uh, of, of this, this notion. And they, they would want to see some, uh, some sort of uh, tackle, someone tackling um, this theoretical problem. Um, I would also want to say that uh, we actually, that's what we banked on, I would say, and, and benefit, <laughs> benefited from, but in retrospect, Back, it was pretty dangerous for, for, for those of you who are listening to think about stories that are, oh, I'm going to give a lot of things and for the editorial team to pick which ones are important. It, it's a pretty dangerous path. It was a very different path than when I took, when I, when I wrote my previous AMR piece. There I had an idea. I want to talk about that. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so looking back, so maybe, maybe Tim, um, if we're doing it again, no, let's write another one. We can take, we can be a little bit more uh, assertive, we're, we're, we're more determined in terms of what we choose and not choose not to uh, to focus on. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think, though, that we took on a riskier project because all three of us had been tenured at that point, right? So we had the ability to take that sort of bigger risk. And I think that, like, you know, that's important to, to emphasize that once you hit that career stage, for scholars to do that, right? Yeah. There's a few really important things, I think, in what you're saying there. There's actually, from a theory building and the importance of theory and management perspective, I think a much bigger um, uh, statement, um, uh, contribution, emphasis, or notion that the paper puts forward. And that's that under any circumstance within the organizational world, the managerial world, the sort of world of, 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 of the, the capitalist world, if you will, um, there's going to be things that are consistently concealed, whether it's intellectual property, whether it's uh, entrepreneurs sort of over-hyping things and, and, and ultimately lying about what they're doing, whether it's engaging in in corporate political activity, whether it's hiding certain finances, certain financial transactions, there's always going to be things that are on the surface unobservable. And what, for me, what this paper highlights is that when we bump up against those scenarios, corporate political activity is just one of multiple scenarios being rigorous about 
theory building and deriving notions of when this might or might not happen from previously tested theoretical ideas and integrating them and formulating them such that we can gauge a much better understanding of when this might happen is an extremely valuable use for theory in managerial uh, uh, settings. And I think that's almost like the more meta statement and meta perspective that this paper opens up. And so that's the sort of notion of the bigger idea that I think is really important. Um, and so even if it was not as well executed on when you first submitted it, the, the fact that, that if, if you got it right, that's what this paper could achieve is really what we're looking for at AMR papers. That's when we're talking about bigger, bolder ideas. The second thing that I think is important is the notion of timing, both the timing for the topic you're dealing with and this whole notion of corporations playing the political game seems to have been getting more and more and more and more and more important. And so at some point, we've got to step in and sort of make sure we're covering all bases from a theoretical standpoint, but then also just the notion of personal timing that, you know, you, you, you've, because one gets tenure, you feel a little bit more freedom to take on riskier projects or projects that that might not work out, but if they do, the upside is potentially bigger. And then the final piece, which is sort of fortunate, but 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 it's something that's worth taking into account, is you've got to try and connect with your editor in some way and and almost like give enough for the editor to be excited about because ultimately they're making the decision. So those are, are I think, three sort of valuable factors to just think about in terms of writing a paper is, is there an even bigger contribution than just the specifics of the theory you're providing, a, a new way of seeing the world? Um, is the timing right for what you're doing, both personally and in terms of what's happening in the world? And then are you providing something that the editor might connect with um, and find intriguing because ultimately they're making the decision. And that's, that could be the associate editor who's handling the paper or a guest editor or someone else. So, so I think those are, are, are very valuable perspectives. Um, can you talk to us now just a little bit about going through that process of pruning um, and focusing on this single theoretical perspective, the uh, uh, you, you've alluded a little bit to the fact that you experimented with different things. Um, what did it look like from a team standpoint? Was that a lot of in-depth conversations? Was it actually writing things up and sharing them and seeing whether they worked? Um, was there any kind of emotion attached to certain ideas that you had to work through as you got rid of some of your other ideas? Um, so can you talk to us just a little bit about the actual, like, nuts and bolts of the revising process and what what worked well for you to eventually anchor on a specific theoretical perspective so, so before we do greg i really want to thank you for offering those insights especially the first one if we you know i wish i could just transcribe it and add it to our paper that's a much better stronger <laughs> From, I didn't realize it was this important. And when I look at, think about, think back, maybe we're important. <laughs> um, well, so that's, that's, that's really, really, when I was reading the paper, that's what struck me is it's like, wow, this is a different, this elevates the importance of theory, especially where we can't observe things going on. And, and you just spend a few minutes thinking about all the unobservable things in organizations. Um, we've got, tons of theory on all the on mergers and acquisitions because when there's a merger and acquisition everyone can observe the merger and acquisition and so you're not only building the theory but you're testing it but in all these other places where things are concealed where there's secrets uh, trade secrets we don't have a lot of theory because that theory can seldom be tested because there's no empirics to go with it and yet building good theory for those areas um, i think can be incredibly valuable so I, 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 that that was my big big takeaway as I read this. But going now and and honing yeah. in a little bit on on just revising, yeah. Because I think a lot of people really struggle 
with this R&R process, um, in particular with a conceptual paper, because you've got a lot of latitude as to what you can do. Editors might, uh, uh, reviewers might have different ideas and they sort of pepper them at you. And, and, and so there's nothing necessarily concrete. So you can't go back to the data. So can you talk to us just a little bit about navigating that process? So maybe I can get started because the idea, like the final perspective we, we took was Tim's idea. And mm. uh, there are some failed ones that I propose. So I'm gonna leave the winner to the last. <laughs> so, <laughs> So, so the first thing I want to mention is that uh, Tim, I don't know if you remember. I think this this process was definitely nonlinear. It was until very until the last, you know, the entire year we took to revise. I think it was until the last, I mean, two or three months that actually we converged on a final model. And previously, there was there are so many proposals that are we tried and failed. And at some point in time, you start to wonder, is it ever going to work? Um, yeah, and so in the, the in the previous long process of looking for things from from my perspective, um, I, I tend to okay, so I tend to gravitate towards some sort of a, a formal modeling. Um, if not explicitly, then that's how I think about things. Um, and so with that, uh, I try to develop some toy models that actually are very much based sometimes were based on rational analysis, sometimes not. And there are always piece a piece in the puzzle that wouldn't fit you know, in the ideas that we, we experimented at that at that moment. Um, and we also tried some established theories uh, in our uh, uh, that we just want to see are we able are we able to take the off the shelf something from the strategy world that we that could we could use. Um, I think we've we've been pretty exhaustive looking at them, and they didn't they didn't really seem to help much. Um, and then our hero here, which is Tim, his uh, PhD training. This is a big chunk of this very developed chunk of uh, like the positive political theory is what they do in American politics. Um, and I would say one more thing. I'm gonna before I pass on to Tim and give him the heavy weight of uh, explaining nothing, the nuts and bolts. So from so it, once we in the last two or three months we found we decided that we're going down this route. And it seems to work. There are things that may, may not work. And from time to time, um, Tim, I don't even remember, um, Tim will be like, oh, I wonder what. So, so I thought it's great. Look, this is this is this this part is working. But Tim will be like, oh my God, my supervisor who when he looks at it, he was criticizing me. He's as, as a 10-year associate professor, he's still thinking about his supervisor, it just reflects how much his PhD training and this this model was important to his PhD training. So with that, Tim, recall for some really funny stories while you work on the methods. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that uh, in some ways you could also slice the paper in two when you turn from the conceptual discussions to the actual modeling. And there's kind of a more micro level expected utility model. And I think in the r, &R process, we converged on that relatively quickly. And I think a lot of um, Greg, what you're saying we could take and apply to other settings where secrecy applies, like that, that's the meat of that application, right? We're thinking about what's the probability I'm going to get detected? What's the cost of that? What's the cost of actually concealing? I think we converged on that part probably within the first three, four months of the RNR, where we really were struggling was the leap from talking about the calculus within the firm in a generic setting about the decision to go secret to then its interaction with the external environment, right? And really, who are we thinking of concealing from? And how do we get a sense of um, where the real payoff for the firm is to conceal, right? And ultimately, you know, when you're talking about corporate political activity and non-market strategy, the target almost always ends up being some sort of public policy making body whether that be an actual government institution or organization or you know, the public at large in like a referendum type setting. So what we wanted to do was then model the firm's interaction with a decision-making body, whatever that decision-making body might be. And we wrestled with a couple of different approaches to it. I don't even know if they really have names, but I can tell <laughs> you that there were about six months of a lot of hand-drawn graphs going back and forth and a lot of passionate debate about the shape of curves and 
underlying logic about all that. <laughs> and then it finally dawned on me in the middle of a Zoom call that what we were doing is something that I actually teach every semester. Um, or like the best way of approaching this is something I teach my undergraduates, right? Which is um, uh, the application of positive political theory to kind of a spatial legislative setting. And, you know, I was like, oh, this actually, we can apply this relatively quickly um, and contribute to that literature uh, in, in doing so. Um, and you know, there was a little bit of a history of that appearing in AMR. So folks like Guy Holborn at Ivy had published papers that had used it, but not a lot, right? So we knew that um, there would be some taste for it in general, but then we also thought about the makeup of our editorial team and kind of the nature of the comments that we got in the r, &R suggested that in knowing who our editor was, that there was kind of a, an econ ish flavor to the reviews we got so we thought that this also kind of from a strategic publishing sense um would make sense yeah yeah and tim i don't know if you have I mentioned this to you uh, uh what when you brought up this positive political theory it really resonated with me because uh, i want to say it has the root in organizational economics you know like uh, the, the location choice model and that's what got into like got me as an undergraduate student into the decision of that I wanted to be an academic. Ah, okay. <laughs> so these are insights, uh, even though I ended up, ended up not doing anything about it. Yeah, yeah. it's your program. There can't be too many AMR pieces that cite Herod Hotelling's grocery store problem from 1929 <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah. So, so you, you, you land up with a paper that is and and I might be misclassifying this, but what 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 I was intrigued by um, on one level was there's clearly a piece or elements of the paper that are formal modeling, but it's not entirely reliant on formal models. There's a lot of narrative that goes with that to sort of unpack what's going on, invoke different ideas and bring them in. So it's sort of a combination of formal modeling plus narrative theory building, plus this quite heavy reliance on graphs to make all of these or figures that are, are, are sort of graphs and slopes and so on to make all of these ideas pop. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about sort of the, 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 the nature of this paper in that format and how you sort of arrived at this place where it's sort of a hybrid of different theorizing approaches and um and 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 why you think that works for the ideas that you're putting forward so maybe i can share two thoughts um, um here uh one is about the hybrid form which is an interesting way to to put it uh formal models they are coherent but they are pointed they are very narrow the the, the topic we're trying to study is wild is the wild west so if we just use a formal model without any big background information it feels like it's so there's a lot that we trivialize things well that's maybe the wrong word to use but we want to give a bigger way of like so so we want to tie together some bigger thoughts first before offering like look this is one perspective that you can you can to generate pr predictions um so hence the first part uh, that you saw was more, much more connected. Actually, it's only part that connected with the initial submission. Um, that that's how we think about what firms would 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 um, uh, would conceptualize uh, the key factors. There are trade offs. Like there are things that make you decided to to conceal. Other things were not. Uh, but then the first part would not generalize predictions. It's just key components out, out there. And the second part of the, uh, the model is there to help us use these components to generate predictions in a particular way. So I think for this topic, that's um, that's what we ended up doing and looking back, it, it, it probably is a uh, an appropriate uh, way of combining things. And, and very quickly also about the, the illustration, the graphics and, um, my my own so i i am i am have i have a lot of inherent interest in formal models and one thing like my understanding of formal models is that uh the math are a tool to tell about that us about intuitions so a lot of the formal models i do not like are just to say hey look that's look that's what math says well what does it mean 
economically or, or for for the topic. Uh, so for me, I, whenever I have a formal model, I spend a lot of time. Spend. I think the process of generating math results actually is it, it takes less, much less time than the process of understanding what math is trying to tell us. So that's why we really put, wants to 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 uh, illustrate what it means, even for those who do not do formal modeling. Well, the, just just to reflect on that, the, I mean, I'm not a formal modeler. I'm not trained in formal modeling, so the actual equations and the symbols mean very little to me. But what was interesting here was I could read what you were describing going up to that and then look at the figures that you had and, and in essence, interpret everything that was going on, even though I couldn't personally unpack the nuances of the, the equations that were going out there. And so I feel like um, th there's there is something exemplary about this paper for people who want to write formal model, who want to utilize formal modeling as a tool, but want to still reach a broader audience um, and be able to speak to a broader audience, even though that broader audience might not understand all of their equations. So that, that's, that was interesting to me. Thanks. So yeah, are, you, are, you, are you a modeler? Or, uh, have you got a background training in formal modeling or were you, were you, drawing in, uh, were, were you uh, dependent on, on the expertise of others in the team to do that? Uh, I mean, I took some formal theory classes as part of yeah. my political science training. I would say though, and this is in part my, was gonna be my answer to your prior question as well, is that uh, at my heart, I'm an empiricist, which I think is why you see so many empirical examples motivating everything here. Um, and then the other reason why I think you see it is that, uh, as you might imagine, in the review process, we got a lot of pushback on, well, this might be great, but how will this ever be testable? Or what examples can you give us of this actually occurring that are kind of documented as opposed to just being theoretical? So that's the other reason I think we put a lot of that in our motivation, where if it were kind of a strictly modeling exercise, you wouldn't see any of that. Yeah. And I think it also probably reflects a uh, team's teaching of, uh, of to, to students. Um, he taught these models to students. He needs to explain it in a super accessible way. And he needs to couple that with real world example because otherwise students fall asleep in class. Um, <laughs> so he brought a lot of that into when we, when we were write, writing this model up. Well, it's a very good strategy for writing a theory paper, I think, because the modeling um, and, and even the graphing brings in some of the disciplined, but the empirical examples bring it to life and make it more understandable. And then in particular, the figures sort of condense it all down and allow you to step back and see the big picture of what's going on. So um, very effectively done there. Who do you see as the target audience for this paper? As you sort of reflect on what you've done, um, who are the primary readers and maybe others uh, others beyond primary readers who might pick it up and find value in, in looking at the paper? Well, I think the obvious target audience is anyone who's working in CPA, but even more broadly, non-market strategy. Mm -hmm. But as we've alluded to several times, I'm hoping that anyone who studies organizational or managerial decision-making where secrecy is an aspect of that can really gain from the first, at least the first two thirds of the paper, right? So I, I view our conceptualization of secrecy and that sort of firm level decision as being one that's broadly applicable um, across management. The, the back third of the paper where we actually kind of lay out these testable propositions, I think there the audience is more clearly kind of non-market strategy people who might pick it up and, and become investigative journalists themselves and try and, and test these propositions. Yeah. So we, we yeah. so we initially discussed that there are there's a skin by design there's a skin empirical evidence of uh, concealed uh, corporate yeah. political activities, um, uh, but increasingly so in the field there are increasing amount of efforts of, of to measure these uh, corporate activities. So I think to uh, to uh, to our fellow res researchers who are who are, are trying to it's actually well it is difficult but it's not impossible. Um, so uh, some of these conceal, so, so some some of these opportunities were were actually were emerged because previous researchers 
overlooked things. Um, so uh, I, I think that is that right now my hope is that for this emerging small but growing uh, literature that aims to empirically tackle uh, 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 concealed political activities, um, I, I hope that our piece will help first, first of all, uh, help them establish the legitimacy of this topic. So general audience say, look, this is something that you guys need to care about, even, even though you haven't never thought about it before. And uh, I hope they could, so as a team said, some element might have helped. Um, it might be difficult to directly test the political, positive political theory um, that once you go into the second part of this model, uh, but who knows, maybe some, 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 some brilliant folks will figure out a way. Uh, at least the first part, the, the general key considerations, uh, we thought, uh, we were hoping that it could, uh, uh, it could be of useful, uh, of, of use for, for someone who's, who actually has empirical measure and trying to understand better of concealed political, political activities. Tim, did you ever get the opportunity to either present this or share this with people who are not so much in the um, organizational managerial domain, but more in the political domain? And, and if you did, what was their reaction? I'm trying to think. So the, the difficulty again with this paper was we took it on the road, if you will, to conferences and talks during COVID. Oh, okay. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it was tricky, but the one or uh, conference we went to where I think that that was relevant was I presented it at um, the Society for Organizational and Institutional Economics. And okay. that's probably the place where we got um, the most interdisciplinary feedback from strategic management people, from economists and from political scientists. And um, all of the feedback we got in presenting it there was, was positive and excited to see work in this space. Yeah, cool. So, so what is sort of next? What is next in terms of your own work potentially extending from this or other things you would like to see other people do? And you've sort of started to allude to some of that and how it could be be used more concretely or more tan tangibly but let's uh, inspire or spark other people to you know use this site this work um uh, or how is it influencing some of the stuff you might be doing so i've seen tim continuing to work on these uh, uh these concealed political activities like this one was inspired by his first smj paper and later he wrote another one to test the first one to say the first one was inconsistent result but for a very good reason right is that right like i'm just gonna say that um but that that's really uh, again pushing he found some additional opportunities for us to see political activities that for various reasons was previously unknown um and later became known uh, and also for myself uh, I'm, I'm working with my phd student uh for young we are trying to look at another sort of opportunity to or reveal some of these political activities, which are, you know, by the by some shareholder proposals. The shareholder wants to know um, what firms are do previously doing secretly. Um, so, so those are th that's a, a a newer context for uh, for political activities, uh, political strategy researchers to uh, get a chance to take a take a peek at. From, from the backstage of political activities. So those are the th some of these things I've observed. And I think in the, um, in the field, I've also started to see some work uh, that were trying to, uh, I mean, working papers that were trying to, to in some ways, uh, um, get at concealed political activities. Think that efforts that efforts like uh, some were, 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 would, would view collective political Collective political action as a way of conceding your political activities is much more difficult to figure out what you do actually if you're in the crowd, you are safety numbers. Um, and some were trying to tackle that from, from that angle. Cool. Any other thoughts, Tim? Oh, uh, in, in terms of my own work, I guess the places where I'm kind of picking up from this, one is looking at um kind of how levels of disclosure of corporate political activity vary across levels of the government and exploiting data that i think that we've long ignored at the u.s state level where firms actually have to disclose far more about their lobbying um and what they're doing and and you know now with um you know quote unquote big data if you will although it's still probably more moderate data in terms of its size 
we're scraping a lot of these lobbying reports, uh, me and some co-authors, and then comparing what firms are lobbying on to what they're claiming in their ESG reports to really look, get at this question of our firms talking green and lobbying brown, to borrow a phrase from Tom Lyon of Michigan, right? So looking at, is there hypocrisy in this area, right? So it's really kind of like exploiting um, the, the knowledge of levels of disclosure to get at that. And then uh, on the theoretical side, I'm actually increasingly interested in um, kind of this question of stakeholder expectations and management of stakeholder expectations in, um, the, in a uh, effectively polarized environment and what role secrecy might play, right? In that you may want to manage a particular group of stakeholders in a particular way, but not alienate another group that's equally important to you, but on the opposite side of an issue, right? And, and that's more a, a, a theory paper I've been working on with my colleague, Adam Cobb here at Texas. Awesome. Yeah, because obviously uh, secrecy or non-disclosure or keeping something secret is part of stakeholder management. And but by not disclosing something or keeping it secret, you might be doing yourself a service with one stakeholder, but a disservice with another stakeholder in a sense. And I, I, I love what you said about sort of um, exploiting gaps in disclosure requirements between state and federal levels and the opportunity to connect that with ESG reporting. Absolutely fascinating. That was whether there was any tie into ESG was actually one of the things I'd noted as a question, because obviously you put ESG on anything right now and it increases in temperature about 50 degrees. Um, so because uh, it's such a hot topic. Final question for just for the two of you, very uh, uh, maybe just a little bit more um, general. What advice would you have for anyone who wanted to try and um, write a theory paper for AMR that was in the maybe in the sort of corporate political or more um, uh, a political strategy kind of space? Um, what, what what would be one or two or maybe three things you would say, you know, focus on, on this, this, and this, and it will at least increase your chances or give you a better chance of developing something that's coherent, that's impactful. And it might be about the questions that they ask, the process that they adopt, the, um, uh, uh, the, 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 the things that they do or don't do throughout that process. So any, any kind of advice? Yeah. Um, so I could offer two pieces of advice. One, um, in terms of like where I think there's work to be done is that for a long time, there has been a dominance theoretically of the public choice approach out of economics in terms of our understanding of corporate political activity. And I think that that theory had a lot of purchase up until recently. So I think we're starting to see a big disconnect between the dominant theoretical paradigm and the actual phenomenon we're applying it to. So I think that's a ripe area for challenge. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a ripe area to do some new theory building in. And then the second piece of advice I have, which is more practical and uh, uh, hopefully communicates a huge compliment to Nan, which is find an experienced co-author who's been through this process before. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and that's and that is how a lot of people navigate. There's there's little nuances in in how things are phrased or in what you do and don't do, and so um, I think that's useful. Nan, what would you say? Um, so I have a thought which is not really tactical, but it's based on my observation of uh, some, especially junior faculty's hesit hesitation to write a theory piece. They consider it high risk. Um, and uh, because a lot of efforts, because the path might appear to be ambiguous. And what you're doing here, Greg, is really helpful to, uh, to unpack a lot of this process of the working paper. And another thing, uh, a lot of concern for them is pretty practical, which is that if it fails the AMR, it doesn't really have a lot of other business to go, right? So in, in my case, um, um, I, I feel like in, in this paper and my previous paper, I have something to say, it's just like I have a, I have, I want to tell the field about one particular, in one case it's a perspective, in this case it's, just a, it's, it's about this topic. Um, I think it's, if, if for someone, if you feel that you have a voice or you have a point that you want to voice to, to, uh, to folks in the field, I think that's very much a strong 
reason to seriously consider um, this. And because I've seen a lot more hesitation to do this than traditional on trying to do it, how to how to get it done. Um, yeah. So, so uh, I, I, that might go much beyond, much more beyond this corporate political strategy topic um, for the AMR um, in general. Um, is that there is probably there might be a little bit of selection process, and you might want to consider how to get those who has have some ideas to actually uh, take the take the first step. Yeah, I think there's so much truth in what you're saying there, and and I think the w one of the things that we've observed happens is exactly what you're saying. More junior scholars recognize it as incredibly risky, something that senior scholars engage in. There's no, uh, I, I'm not sure I can make it work. And if it doesn't work, I don't have other options. But the downside to all of that, what, what we've observed is the longer someone doesn't attempt to publish in AMR, the less likely they are to attempt to do so in the future. And so you get people coming in who might come, who might have been working in government affairs in a large corporation or are coming from a really interesting space with a really interesting perspective. And then, and then they get told or uh, deduced for themselves never to publish in AMR or not to do it too early. And so they don't do it, they don't do it, they don't do it. And then, and then almost their fresh ideas and fresh perspective yeah, and nuanced take on the world what they've got to say goes away because they become too ingrained in the sort of way everyone else is seeing things in academia and so there comes a point where I think it's not about investing your whole career in oh I'm going to publish in AMR but maybe as part of a portfolio approach you say I've got this one important thing to say and so I'm going to attempt to say it Maybe find someone who's done it before who can help you navigate that process, but don't just ignore it because it's seen as risky or it's seen as difficult or it's seen as there being no other option because everyone loses out there. The, the person who's holding back loses out, the field loses out because we don't get these fresh perspectives. So I think that's incredibly useful statement, Nan. Thank you. Well, thank you to both of you. That was a fantastic conversation and I would not have picked I mean I'm, I'm sort of somewhat intrigued by corporate political activity but I probably wouldn't have picked this up and read it while I was going through it I was just saying man this is this is breakthrough stuff for us in terms of thinking about the role that theory can play and so I hope that anyone who wants to ever think about anything that might be secretive, might be concealed, might not necessarily be observable. Pick this up as, as a great example of um, what are some of the factors to pay attention to, how you can utilize theory to better understand what might be going on. And in particular, if you're studying corporate political activity, this is an absolute must read. So thank you for taking the time to share the background to this paper. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the conversation, the opportunity. Sure. Yes, thanks, Greg, and for your kind words about our work. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs>